Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you've joined me today. It is a rainy, rainy day here in Western North Carolina, and you might notice a theme that I managed to <laughs> sometimes record a podcast when it rains, but if there's a long stretch of sunshine, I don't do as well. That's not the whole thing, but it's it's part of it, and it definitely, if I am restricted to the indoors when the other option are some type of productive household chores on an off day. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, I, I need to do a podcast. And I just sit down and start chatting with y'all. I will admit it's been harder than usual to think of things to talk to you about. I feel like in the past couple of years, I have just talked about every single thing there is to talk about. I hope that's not true. Or maybe there's some of you that are just starting from here and not going back to the very beginning. And maybe there's some of you like the way I listen to many podcasts and listen to many YouTubes. I don't watch many YouTubes, but I listen to a lot of them in the background while I'm doing other things. There are many presentations I listen to that pretty much there's nothing totally brand new to me, but it will remind me of things that maybe I've slacked off on or haven't thought about lately. So maybe this podcast functions that way for you. We are coming to the end of the 2021 bee season in one sense, in the whole increase part of the year when they were building up before the solstice really. That has been on a downhill slide ever since the summer solstice around the end of June. And here we are in the less fun part of the bee year. I will say after these years, 11 years, it's less scary than it has been at other years. Now that's not to say that the news will be good come next April, <laughs> but I just go in with a clearer idea uh, of barring wild cards. I have a, a better feel of how the winter will go. I don't know if y'all heard that funny little noise, but Merkel is sleeping right here and he just made the biggest groan in his sleep. Hopefully he's having a good dream and won't start barking at rabbits in his dreams like he does sometimes. This year I've focused a lot on simplifying and on kind of just not beating up on myself <laughs> for all the things that I know how to do better. And sometimes I just don't manage to do them better. The thing that I am proud of of myself is that I don't sugarcoat that to myself or to you or to anybody. In the words of one of my favorite beekeeping bloggers, the fellow over at the apiarist, our approach can be not ideal, but pragmatic. And you just do the best you can. I am in the sort of taking an assessment, a mental assessment of how I did this season. I don't think I did so bad. There are a few things that I'm actually really pleased with. One was just the restraint to stop making a ton of baby nukes very late in the season. I've tried that several recent years because I'm trying to hit that magic thing of uh, where you have going into winter a queen that's so young that when she comes out on the other side of winter, she's still young and strong and can get a roaring start. And also, she hasn't had the exposure of a full honey season to all the things that bees are exposed to, or she hasn't been exposed to the workload of a working queen for an entire season. But the downside of that plan of trying to raise very late season queens, and of course when that is, depends entirely on what your 
particular microclimate is. For me, I was just trying to hit them to where the queen basically was mated after the summer solstice. Unfortunately, with the fairly short season we have up in the mountains of North Carolina, as much as a it can be as much as a month shorter on either end than some of the warmer parts of North Carolina. Unfortunately, what that does is if I have a baby queen that goes out on her mating flight right at or around the solstice, then that puts her still in a fairly small mating nuke. I mean, she's growing and I'm trying to help her grow, but it puts her still in that very fragile growth stage right as we are hitting potentially serious robbing pressure. And last year, I really saw the effects of that. The little nukes were under pretty severe robbing attacks. And even though I did all the precautions with the little robbing screens, you know, once she got back in from her mating flight with robbing screens and reduced entrances and trying to keep them, oh, away somewhat separate from the larger hives though I have so many hives here at the farm uh, relatively speaking that I just can't, I just can't do that I'm just not quite organized and set up enough to have only you know mating nuke and nuke size things here and then have all my honey hives elsewhere which would be ideal but is not pragmatic for me personally <laughs> because I just don't quite have enough off day time to do a bunch of out yard work. This year I just did one out yard, a very small out yard, and I'm glad I did because it's it's fascinating to see the difference even though it's just a few miles down the road. Even with just one this year as opposed to two last year, I didn't get over there as often as I would prefer to and they did not get the attentive care that I would have preferred to give them compared to the home yard and I'm just here more and so some days at the home yard uh, after work I can still run out there and do a thing or two or look at a hive or two and it not be so long in between but at an out yard even if I have a half day to go do it if there's too many hives and also <laughs> just for me again that because I'm not a professional at this I'm it's just home scale beekeeping it's inevitable it feels like that I get over there to the out yard and I discover some type of situation going on in a hive that I don't have the right pieces and parts to solve it that day and so then I have to make myself a list I'm like I've got to go back over there and I've got to take this or that or or what happened this year and I, okay let, let me just fess up here this just happens to me every year somewhere some part of the the bee season I'm going to be adding a box to a hive and somehow I counted wrong or there'd been a feeder in there that I took out or whatever or something 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 and I have missing frames and so I always make myself this big list and a reminder you know go put this missing frame in this hive and somehow somewhere I always forget and you go to lift that inner cover and you're like wow why does this inner cover it is, must be really propolized on because it feels like it weighs 30 pounds. And then you pick it up and realize, oh, there's a enormous honeycomb hanging off here. And often you're lucky if it's still hanging off by the time you lift the lid, you know, that it's not falling out on your, your legs or your shoes. Just one more reason why it may look nerdy, but, you know, tucking your pants into your socks is <laughs> not a bad idea in case you uh, drop a frame or in this case you drop a bunch of comb that's not attached to a frame because you forgot to put the frame in or you just didn't do your to-do list. And that, believe me, my I kind of joke with my spouse that <laughs> when it's like, has this been done yet? I'm like, that is on the not done yet list. So anyway, I would say on the done well, my personal done well 
list for the season. And this, I think, is a good habit, you know, to in your B notebook at the end of a season when it's still fresh. Just make a list for yourself. You know, no judgment. It's a it's about learning because you're going to be doing a little better every year for the next however many decades you're in beekeeping. And I hope it's the rest of your life. I hope you love it that much and that you get just a little better every year. And if you keep that up over however much lifetime you have left, and some of you are very young and have a lot of lifetime yet, so you have a long time to get like really good at something. And it's such a rare thing in our world anymore. So I'm all for it. I think there's a, there's a special satisfaction in being really good at something. And I don't have that many in my life, but beekeeping is one of those that I, I'm not going to say I'm really good at it, but I'm pleased with my progress and I am committed to learning and committed to doing a little better every single year. So this year, the things I did better on, I think I did better on keeping up with feeding especially when I did splits and growing up young baby colonies, I was more aggressive with feeding because something that has just become so clear to me in the past few years is there is a huge difference between stored honey, particularly capped honey, and nectar. And and, and that can be either a flow or it can be one-to-one sugar syrup provided by the beekeeper. Those are two entirely different they're just two entirely different creatures from the eye viewpoint of a bee because one is emergency when well I shouldn't say emergency one is just winter survival food it is like the MREs of the winter for the bees but the other the incoming nectar whether from nature or from the beekeeper that is the signal for that colony to increase so what I was more careful with this year, a few years back, I just, I don't know, I just made this error of being like, oh, this, this hive has plenty of honey, so I don't, you know, I don't need to, to give them food. And I was startled at how much the population did not increase compared to hives that because they were light, I had fed. Even though there were the hives that were heavy, technically speaking, had tons of resources. They have water available, so sure, they could water down their own honey to feed brood, but that's just not what they do with honey unless they have to. That was a big learning experience to me to just see with my own eyes, you know, to, to open up hives, started at the same time, side by side, and it's just one had started with a lot of weight, one had started with virtually no weight, so I just fed the heck out of them, you know, trickle feeding because the point was to simulate a flow. And man, they, they grow on that in a way that they just don't on however much weight they have. And when I think about it, there there's probably all kinds of reasons for that that I could probably look up and understand. But if I just think of it in that it is the natural cue It's the natural cue for the bees that if there's a flow incoming, hey, when does that happen? It happens spring and early summer, and that's their build-up time, and the days are long, and the days are getting longer. And those are all their cues to be in that expansive mode. And then as the days start getting shorter, as the summer dearth in most places, there's some type of summer cutback at least, or dearth comes in. And, And here in western North Carolina and all the rainy places in the world, you know, rain can be... Rain can be a brutal dearth if they are in there in a, in rain and don't have enough stores. So I think so many people think of dearth as just a, a droughty type thing or the end of the flowers. But a bunch of rain uh, will definitely give you all the symptoms of dearth and, and some few extra worse ones too. So... 
the feeding has gone better. Um, I have kept up with them. I have just literally kept it on my to-do list. You know, remember to feed growing hives. I literally put it on my daily list so I could kind of think, okay, who still, who needs to be fed? The other thing that I won't say I've done well, but I can definitely learn from is that I notice I do better on that with hives that have external visible feeders. I have a few outer covers that a friend gave me that are, they are, they've they've got the metal on them, but they've also got a hole cut in top that fits a mason jar. And the benefits of that, now you have to watch out, you have to be careful for rain leaking into the to the hive, make sure it fits. I have one that seems a little bit oversized, so I put a ring of, of duct tape in there just to kind of act like a gasket to keep the rain from creeping down in there. The ones with the outer feeders, it is a v- wonderful visual cue of, oh, they've finished that jar. Is it time to give them another jar? The next best has been feeders like the little round or actually I think they come in square now the little rapid feeders they often look something like a bunt pan that sit on top of the inner cover they cover that hole and then you can fill them and then you you put another box around them to to cover it up because they're not I mean they would blow off with enough wind if they were empty or something so you put a empty box around it the advantage to those is that you can refill it without letting any bees out and when you're having a bunch of sunny days, that's like, well, who cares if a few bees get out? But on rainy days, those few that get out can be really cranky. And the just the little thing of um, you don't want to have to, I don't want to have to light a smoker every time I fill the feeders. So if there are feeders like the mason jars that come out of the hole that are pretty easy to just carefully uh, scrape the bees off in a non-harmful fashion when you move the jar. And what I do is I have a little piece of the the silver bubble wrap, the Reflectix stuff, which is just duct tape's friendly cousin. I, I couldn't do without that stuff. <laughs> I think duct tape, Reflectix, and thumbtacks, with those three things, you could pretty much build nearly everything you need in a apiary. But I have a little square of it that when I take the empty mason jar off, I gently brush the bees off, you know, back in the hive by just lifting the mason jar and sliding it over to the right. And they kind of get bumped off and fall back in. And at the same time, I'm sliding that little piece of Reflectix over the hole because that way it just simplifies. Once I fill up the jar, I can just do that in reverse and get it back on there without bees coming out that hole and walking around on the lid and taking account of everything and then being difficult to either get back in there or, you know, to brush off in a way that they'll find their way back in. Because usually all this that I'm talking about is, you know, it's either raining or <laughs> or it's, it's dark uh, because I got off work late. So those visible feeders have worked really well for me. Second best have been feeders that you can access inside an empty box on top, but at the same time, you don't have to let bees out. And the two that I have that work really well that way are the rapid feeders, which cover that little hole or a mason jar over that hole. And if you have the right type of lid, you can actually put a little piece of uh, bee hardware cloth over the upper entrance and just set the mason jar on it. Now, you have to be careful here because depending on that hardware cloth and depending on the holes and the 
in your mason jar, sometimes they can't reach it. And you'll you'll notice they're not taking as much as the hive next to them. So just be aware that their little tongues are only so long and they can only stretch up uh, so much to get through the, the hardware cloth. So those are really handy. And I wish I had more of those setups because when I don't have those setups and I use in-hive frame feeders, then of course you have to open the lid. And that just may, means that I tend not to fill those if the day has gotten so late that it's dark or if it's raining um, and I know they're going to be pissed off if I open that lid. And so what happens is they don't get enough feed. So the non-intrusive feeders have some benefits for me given my work schedule. Now the one workaround I have found with an in-frame feeder is I have a few, a handful of the inner covers. I believe I got these from Rossman Apiary. I could be wrong on that, but down in Georgia, who has a lot of eight frame stuff that, that matches mine. And so I've, I've bought a few things from them, but I got some, I think I got them from there. They're inner covers that instead of being the solid wood with the one hole in the middle, they're screen, but they're the kind that have a panel of wood across the middle. And so it's the best of all worlds for a screen cover for for me because you can cover that inner hole with hardware cloth and the bees can't come up and out and so what that has allowed me to do the the few that I have is if I put the frame feeder in a place that I can pour the liquid syrup through the screen into the frame feeder then I can achieve the same thing of filling the feeder without letting any bees out and the other thing I like about that is it allows me to either use that inner cover I mean when I'm not feeding like when there's a flow it has a little upper entrance notch unlike the ventilated inner covers that simply lift the outer cover up a little bit to let heat out uh, and humidity out. Those are, I really like those in humid, hot areas like in Arkansas. Those were wonderful. And these kind of hybrid screened ones, they can go either way. You can cover that the center hole with hardware cloth and then tilt the outer cover and so there you've you've created a ventilated inner cover for high summer or you can use it just like a regular wooden inner cover with an entrance notch to provide an upper entrance for the bees so I, I like those the one thing I do with those with any screened cover is I make sure that I have insulation board of some type usually the foam I make sure that I have that on the inner on the inside of the outer cover so that that top is insulated. And I just do that because I've noticed that the if, if you're in a hot climate and the burning sun down on just the thin metal and wood of an outer cover, and if you have a wooden inner cover, then that gives them a little bit of protection from the heat coming in, the radiant heat coming in that way. But if you have a screened inner cover, then essentially that hot tin roof, the heat off that goes right on the bees and it just creates more need for cooling with them. So I, I've pretty much switched to my outer covers all have that piece of insulation stuck in them and I use them winter and summer. I make sure in the summer, I make sure they can still have, you know, ventilation and everything through the upper entrance. But I like that because to me it in the winter, it keeps the warmth in and the cold out. And in the summer, it keeps the heat out. So to me, that's just a one little step closer to a natural tree cavity, less work for them to heat and cool the hives. And that, now that I've just 
left them in there over the summer. Then for a nice welcome change on my done well list (laughs) is that I don't have to do that for the winter. I don't have to take them in and out and find them and put them in there and all that type thing. They just live in there. It, It worked great this summer. I had pretty much no bearding to speak of. And it, it was funny because I walked by the, the main home apiary and I, I did see a hive bearding and I was like, hmm, you know, are they overcrowded? And I went and checked and it was one that the ins, inner insulation of the lid had had fallen out at some point and I guess I'd used it for something else anyway. That, so that was, it, it was kind of nice feedback that that cover does make a difference in the hot summertime, which we are now moving out of by the same token If you are only going to do one thing to prepare the hive body, now hopefully you've done a lot to prepare the colony that's living inside, but for the hive body, if you only do one thing to prepare for winter, if you're in a colder climate, I would really suggest that piece of foam board inside your outer cover. Now, you, depending on the thickness of that foam and depending on your experience and all that, you may or you may not provide upper ventilation. There are definite risks of not having upper ventilation. I am still of mixed mind on this because I've done some experiments based on reading of research of providing heavy insulation on top and no upper ventilation in the winter. And I like what I see. The only loss I've ever had that I could clearly pinpoint that it was a moisture problem was in the case, this was before I insulated any of the outer covers and I accidentally slid. I just, I think I leaned against the the outer cover and closed the upper ventilation hole without knowing it. And it was a huge um, hive. And they definitely died from uh, condensation dripping on them. It was obvious. They were soaking wet and it was pitiful. At that point, I became an, an avid person. I mean, I just checked like crazy to make sure my, my upper ventilation was open. But what I have found just doing some very careful experiments after reading is it is true. If you've got enough insulation on top, then they don't, uh, let me correct that. (laughs) In my experience, I've had no losses due to condensation dripping on them. So take that as you will. There are definite different ways to do it and many, many ways work. So that was that was a long ramble to say the insulation board that simply lives inside my outer covers that's a permanent fixture i have found <laughs> that if it's a very populous hive they will go up through the hole in the inner cover and they will chew that blue foam board and they'll chew holes in it and propolize it and chew the 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 kind of cover off of it and so the way i have remedied that is and, and now I do it when I first install the board. It, I, only, I think it's the inch or, inch or inch and a half that I have. I, th- I believe it's inch on most of them. It's just the, that's the basic um, level of, of insulation. And so what I've been doing is I save my feed bags from chicken food, the, the ones that are plastic and they kind of look like they're woven. I save those and then I wrap that blue foam in it, uh, duct tape the chicken feed bag to the side that's going to go up inside the outer cover. I know this is probably challenging (laughs) to see all this audio. Beginners, please don't flip out. Once you've done this a few years, you'll just hear this and know exactly what I'm talking about. 
like the more experienced beekeepers do right now, they, they know exactly what I'm talking about because you get used to all these things. But I'm sure as a beginner, if you're just getting used to the pieces and parts of a hive, this this would might freak you out. But So just roll on past this and uh, know that soon it will be like, oh yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about, even though I can't see a picture. Insulation board that lives inside the outer cover, covered with a feed bag, that has worked great. They don't propolize, they don't seem to propolize that to the inner cover the way they do when it was just the raw insulation. So what was happening was uh, I would have the outer cover on and I'd go to take it off and they would have stuck that piece of insulation to the inner cover and then have to pry that off. But I have noticed they don't seem to do that, at least so far, to the feed bag and that is working in several, several good ways. And just to clarify, um, that's just my basic insulation board. So if I am doing the thing that I've experimented with about heavy top insulation and no no upper ventilation, in those cases, I do I go much more insulation than just that one inch board. I don't know that just one inch board and really cold on a big hive. I don't know that that would be all the concentration prevention that one would need. So. Moving on from that, I'm going to put that on my checklist of things I will have done and will continue to do of having those just live in there. So to wrap back around, I don't know if I finished that thought completely about the that I was pleased that I had stopped raising queens and raising baby nukes. I'd stopped earlier this year than last year. I stopped doing that probably around early June, definitely by mid-June, I was done. And even though if I started them in mid-June, I made them quite a bit larger than I typically make. In May, you can get away with, it's particularly if you've got the little poly nukes. I mean, you can start things with two frames and they will just go. And, and, and remember, I'm just using medium frames. So if you're using deeps, you could probably do that easily. Um, with mine, they need a little uh, attention. And I used the, the queen castles with the multiple chambers to sort of give them a little bit more bulk and room if I start them off that small. But in May, you can start off with two frames. And as long as you tend them and feed them, because they don't have the foraging force to grow like they need to, they will be a nice size nucleus, a good fat nucleus by the time robbing season gets there. And they just do not have the same issues with robbing. You know, they are queen right and it is noticeable, boy. The robbers know if a hive is not queen right and they will just dive on it. I don't know how that affects things, but, you know, whether the colony is demoralized <laughs> and just aren't good soldiers or, well, I, I don't even know what, why that affects it, but it is it is visibly true. Uh, the robbers will go for a queenless hive or a queenless nuke in a way that they do not with if they are queen right and growing and populated enough to defend themselves to defend themselves without exhausting themselves. And that seems to be the trick because in the little tiny mating nukes that didn't go so well in 2020, you know, there there may be still alive, you know, there may be enough bees, technically speaking, but they had gotten too depopulated from fighting off robbers to really thrive. And so that was the thing that I remedied this year and that I will continue to do. So my new rule on that for me personally is that the little small nukes, like a two or three frame starting off a nuke and with a queen cell or even a mated queen, 
that will cease by the end of May. And then in if I am making making splits or doing things in June, which which I will, because that's that's still an important time of expansion in a short season. May and May and June are really are. Well, late April, May, and June, those are our highlights here in the mountains. So I'll definitely continue doing that. The one alteration being I make that nuke much bigger. If it's iffy, then it would definitely be moved to a different yard so that it retains all of its population to stay that size. You know, it's not made in the same apiary and loses its foragers, then dwindles to a size that they can't handle the pressure of the inevitable pressure of the robbers when dearth comes. So those are just a few things I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. I hope your bee yards, if you are in a climate similar to mine, then you're starting to wrap up the season in the sense that you're starting to do all the buckle up processes needed to get ready for winter. In fact, it should be well underway. In fact, (laughs) you should have started on this in uh, August, August 1st. (laughs) Really, if you haven't done it and you're like going, oh my God, I realize in hindsight, there's all these things I should have done. Well, talk to an experienced mentor and find out where you can go from here. Don't give up. Don't uh, hide your mistake. It's okay. We all make mistakes. In my opinion, don't ask what to do on Facebook because if they're the number one way of getting the most bad ideas, I believe, is asking a question on Facebook. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I just almost can't read a lot of uh, the beekeeping groups because when I see the answers to questions, it's just too painful. Ask an experienced mentor directly by email or text or phone or in person if you can. And that will be, I believe, much more likely to be useful information than the stuff on social media. And if you do need, for whatever reason, to ask online, frankly, I've had much better responses, much more educated and informed responses on like B source. But even then I put in my question, if I ask a question on there, I will put specifics on like, if you've been a beekeeper more than five years, how do you handle blah, blah, blah. And and it, it still won't weed out everybody, those two year people that are just convinced that they are, they have got it figured out. And <laughs> I had been warned. The only reason I didn't think that when I was two years is because I had been warned that that happens, that that is a natural part of the life cycle of a beekeeper is the the two and three year people. And, and actually now I'd say the the uh, the one to five year people, anything they tell you, you have to take with a grain of salt. And that's not to insult them. They may have studied ferociously. But what I've learned is all my ferocious study is not match for doing it year after year. And you will know things and you'll know, you'll just know things in a way that the books can't teach you. Now, I am obviously a fan of the books, the magazines, the podcasts, the everything uh, in terms of education. But I'm also very realistic about the limits of that information, particularly the specifics of your microclimate. So sorry, I got off on a soapbox there. Maybe I'm getting back to myself. All right. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. You are very welcome to email me and tell me what's going on with your apiary to ask questions that I might address on future podcasts. I may not write back, but I keep those and I will um, address them. 
I have an overdue email. Chris Palgrave, if you're listening to this, oh my gosh, I've your email was so wonderful. And I've kept it in that terrible file in my computer that's like, you know, write back to this when you have time to really thoughtfully respond. And unfortunately, it just turns out to be a museum closet that I don't get back to. And so anyway, Chris, I loved your email and I cannot wait to, to write back. And I hope you have not given up on me. Thank you to every single patron who keeps this show going. I appreciate you, and it is literally true that if it was not for you guys, I would have hung up my spurs on this sometime back, just because that would be easier. <laughs> and um, I mean, it wouldn't be as fun, but it would be easier. But when I look at the patrons who tell me in real terms that this is helping them, that keeps me going. It keeps me looking for things to talk to you about. And I'll probably, Lord willing, be talking to you much more regular once the bee season kind of draws to a close. All right, y'all take care. Be careful out there. Take care of you. Take care of your health and your mental health and all that in these strange times that we live in. Enjoy your bees, and I'll talk to you soon.